You, me, and HIFMB. Stories of science and the sea. Hello, welcome back and happy new year everybody. This time we have something different for you. Actually, we flipped tables today and Kim, Kimberly Peters from episode three, I believe, uh, interviewed me today. So um, yeah, this is an episode where you get to know more about me uh, as a researcher. And uh, I, yeah, I hope you like it. Uh, this time we're not actually highlighting one of my um, core pieces. We're just going through my CV and, and Kim asked me a range of questions about um, interdisciplinarity, how I got where I am, and a bunch of cool surprise questions at the end. So definitely stay tuned until the end. Um, yeah, and without further ado, let's get rolling. Happy 2024. Rolling. Rolling. We're rolling. Yeah. Hello, dear listeners. I have something very special for you today. Uh, the tables are being turned. And we have today in the hot seat for our HIFMB podcast, none other than Jan. Yeah, hi. Hi, Jan. <laughs> I think it's about time we give some airtime to your work, don't you think? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. If you think, if you think it's time. I it's think time. it's time. I think it's time. <laughs> Jan has very kindly been giving so much time to everyone else's work in the HIFMB, um, which has been phenomenal in helping us understand the wide range of work that goes on within the walls of our institute, mm -hmm. but also understanding other things such as what's going on with the landscape of postdoctoral um, life and experience in terms of what's going on with our PhD community. So yeah, it's definitely time. It's yeah. time, Jan, it's time, <laughs> it's time. So shall I kick off? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I've got lots of questions yeah, for you. Shoot. I think it's really important that our <laughs> listeners know a bit more about you. Okay. So, Jan, you're the voice of our podcast. Mm -hmm. You are normally in the question seat. I hope you're feeling nervous. Yeah. There you are. <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> oh, like every good interviewer, I like to put people at their ease. Mm -hmm. um, so, I'm interested in how well our listeners really know their host. Um, and I wondered if you could start by just telling us a little bit about you. Yeah. About you as a researcher, Jan. Sure. Um, how did you come to be in our institute? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, basically that all started with, I think my, 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 so with my dad. Let's start with my dad because he oh, started. That's yeah. surprising. That's such a nice start. I wasn't, <laughs> this is why we do this, everyone. Yeah. These surprise answers. I'm going to start with my dad. Okay. So yeah, my, my dad, Ulf. Hi, dad. Hi, pa. Um, he, he started uh, diving at some point. I don't even remember when, but uh, that got me interested in diving. So then I started diving and all of a sudden I, I wanted uh, to become a marine biologist. So um, I then went to Australia, uh, to Townsville, JCU, uh, James Cook University, and uh, studied marine biology because I, I wanted to. At that point, I was already a dive master, so I could at the time uh, work as a dive master and, and uh, yeah, study marine biology. Um, in Australia, in English for the first time, so it's not my native language. Um, and yeah, then then from there, uh, so Townsville is on the on the verge of of the tropics, and doesn't have uh, seasons. It's got the wet season and the dry season, and I was really missing seasons. So then, when it came to uh, picking a master's program, I wanted to go back to where there's seasons. So I w went back to Europe, uh, went to Bremen in the north of Germany. Um, and studied marine biology also. So that's the master's of marine biology in, in Bremen. Um, and yeah, then, then, uh, finished that, did my thesis in, in Thailand. So through 
throughout my my career i was always because i worked on coral reefs a lot um so that kind of became my my thing coral reef ecologist um and yeah i did my thesis work in thailand uh then um, came back to Bremen and and worked as a research assistant for a year at ZMT, the Center for Marine Tropical Ecology in Bremen also. Um, and yeah, they basically at, at that time, then there's this time where as a, as a master's student, you, you have to score a PhD somewhere. And there was a, a really cool post advertised in uh, Lancaster in England with Nick Graham. Um, hi, Nick. My... <laughs> my second dad <laughs> no uh, like my my um phd dad basically and he he advertised a position on um feedback processes so kind of like feedback loops like when you have a affecting b and then b affects a again that's a feedback loop and those exist on coral reefs um like for instance when you have um algae overgrowing reefs and they grow so dense that all of a sudden, um, normally they're getting fed on by by herbivores, but by herbivorous fish, so by plant eating fish, and normally they they control them quite well so that they don't overgrow the reef. But then if they get too dense, for some reason the fish don't want to eat them anymore and don't don't uh, care anymore and don't act as lawnmowers, and then they overgrow the reef, and that's a feedback process. Like they they self reinforce, and I was studying that basically with Nick. Um, with field work in the in the Seychelles, so that was really nice. Um, and uh, but at the time, um, so that, then I was really ecology. So I was all natural sciences. Didn't didn't read about uh, social sciences at all. But then at the time, um, I worked a lot with uh, other PhDs from from uh, Lancaster with Anna Woodhead and and Marlene Schutter, for instance. And they work with Christina Hicks, and she is a social scientist. Mm. Um, and there came the the thought in my head that um, the natural sciences are being too exclusive. And if you want to really do conservation right, you need to include people. Um, and that's when I wanted to include uh, social science into my arsenal, into my research. Mm. Um, and you did that through your PhD. I did, yeah, yeah, kind of. A like bit, um, yeah. Nick, Nick gave me a lot of freedom. Um, I also worked with uh, the Stockholm Resilience Center a lot. So they co-funded my PhD. And they allowed me to to kind of expand into the social ecological realm. So social ecological is like what they call interdisciplinarity or interdisciplinary sciences. Um, so I'm taking aspects of, of social sciences and ecological sciences and merge them in my research. And so I looked at um, social ecological feedback processes on uh, the reefs of Jamaica. So feedbacks between people and the reef and um, how they have degraded over time the reef process um yeah and pretty much got interested in in social sciences and uh or more interdisciplinarity and um then that was the final chapter of my phd um i wrote them all up and then um hfmb published their their position for a postdoctoral um position so the the one i'm currently in or not really the one i'm currently in i'm in a new one now but the one that was called Morisco, so the Morisco project, um, that was social ecological feedback processes at its core. Um, and really, I could I could uh, apply the research that I had done on Jamaican reefs. I could apply them very well to uh, what they wanted me to do here, but in the sphere of biodiversity science. Um, 
so then uh, I applied for the position while I was still doing finishing my PhD, writing it up. I applied for the position, and and miraculously got it. Like I applied for many positions that I didn't get, um, but this one I did get, um, and it was in in Oldenburg, so very close to uh, Bremen, where I where I had already lived. Um, so I moved back to Bremen during the pandemic. That's in 2020. <laughs> um yeah so, so we're in 2020 now i applied for the position finished my phd during the pandemic um had actually to move back into my parents house because i had to move out of britain um because when the pandemic uh, started i guess i i thought oh god this is going to take a while so um and i was on the finishing end of my phd so i wanted to move and and brexit happened so i wanted to move back to the eu um and yeah, I was I was staying with my parents while finishing my PhD, finished it, started the new position immediately. Um, and yeah, then pretty much that got me to where I am now. So uh, the Morisco project looks at um, biodiversity change and what that means for people, basically. And on a, on a, uh, on the coast, though, so coastal marine. Uh, biodiversity change and what it means for and people. that's really begun to frame your work now this yes. relationship with people exactly. but i want to scoot back a bit first okay, yeah, if sorry. that's okay yeah, yeah definitely sorry. because i'm sorry i've got too many interesting questions that come <laughs> out of that yeah so i mean i'm gonna start by saying i mean first of all jan i didn't realize we have a shared history of of, of basically moving back home for that final <laughs> final stage of your phd yeah i wonder how many other people listening also did that mm. you know this this moment of uh, of going of having to go somehow home um yeah. <laughs> whilst you've been out and independent and doing your own thing and then going back um but that gets me thinking about locations mm -hmm. um i mean you've done some work in some nice locations i have yes definitely. i you know we, we've got we've got an undergraduate in australia yeah we've got jamaica was mentioned i think thailand cropped up a little bit yeah how are you finding oldenburg oldenburg's <laughs> nice <laughs> no it's actually a really cool it's it's a really cool city uh, for the size, um, you, you, it feels a lot larger than it is, but you can reach everything by bike. It's amazing. Um, short of the weather, that's not so amazing. But yeah. In summer, it's good. Yeah, in summer, it is good. So, I mean, as you have sort of mentioned, getting around and, and transport, this is not the best seg. But anyway, I'm going to keep going with yeah, it. Sorry. Um, one thing I was quite interested where you started with diving, right? So what's the best thing about diving? I'm not a diver. I've mm. actually never been diving. So what is it about diving yeah. that enabled you to build this fascination yeah. with underwater worlds with the marine environment with mm. what you're doing now like what what what's it like to dive yeah it's incredibly relaxing um and and although it is so once you're underwater it's incredibly relaxing but everything um leading up to that is uh, can be stressful um and you feel you, like you go out on a zodiac for instance and you go off the side jump off the sides roll uh, backwards roll or, or something like that you you have a lot of gear on you feel cool and, and then what but, but but then once you're underwater it becomes uh incredibly relaxing and and all of a sudden you're in a different world you see let's let's say you're on a coral reef i i learned how to dive in a, in a little pond in germany which was gr just green but let's say you're on a coral reef um you you experience all of a sudden a new world it looks like a, a little alien city and that like the the corals are the the houses and all of a sudden you see the fish flying over the city mm -hmm. swimming over the city um 
and yeah you just become naturally curious and and want to find out more about this this miraculous space that makes you so relaxed <laughs> yeah it's it's really intriguing i don't know F for the first time the first time diving with my dad i i think i was intrigued and mm -hmm. and wanted to know more and that's and do you still dive now yes yeah yeah, yeah. we go diving all the time um yeah where uh, v various places last last time last summer we went to egypt for instance yeah, that was nice. So that's the best thing about diving. And do you, is it part of your, any part of your work now? Is it something you would like to build into your work in the future? Um, I've, I've done a lot of field work already on, um, on, on coral reefs and I've dived a lot for, for like, like 3000 research dives or something. Mm. It's what 2000, maybe 3000 in total. Um, but, um, and I've had, I've had a good run with field work. I think now is, is the time since the pandemic, I haven't, I haven't really looked back to uh, doing field work um, because I, I kind of adapted to the new lifestyle of the pandemic and and analyzed other people's data. Mm. Um, I was handy at the time um, because we couldn't go on, on expeditions. So we had to analyze other people's data that were already collected. And I kind of yeah adapted to that and I like it. Um, uh, I, I now I'm in my current position, I'm kind of advising policymakers and decision makers. Uh, it's a cool, it's a cool transition I've done. I, I would go back and do some field work, but I think um, right now my time is more worthwhile spent not doing field work mm. and, and focusing on the advising thing. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, it's so interesting you say that. There's a wonderful quote that's in a book that I really like that's about social science methods. And yeah. it, it says that people often miss the opportunity of what they can do in their own chair basically mm -hmm. because of this almost this prominence that's given to field work that that's where that's where the best knowledge comes from or, or the 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 most close close knowledge that yeah. we can get of something and of course that's that's one way of looking at it but there's many other ways in which we can access exactly. understandings of our world yeah. um and i think again that's part of this richness of this institute is the different ways in which people go about their work mm -hmm. yeah. um, there are people who do embedded field work there yeah. are people who use a variety of data sets and sources that are already out there yeah. um and uh, using virtual methods as well you know even when we work with people for example we might not always go and do it in the field we might use skype interviews or mm -hmm. you know exactly. or another platform provider yeah um <laughs> so you know those are quite interesting things so i've asked you what was best about diving mm -hmm. um what was best about britain about Britain, yeah, <laughs> the the nature is so underrated. I I really fell in love with hiking, um, and and camping outdoors, and and uh, with my friends, uh, in in Britain, we went to so many caves in the lake. Like Lancaster's mm -hmm. really close to the Lake District, and that's so nice. It's such a nice area. Mm -hmm. Britain's nature, I I never you, you never hear about mm -hmm. outside of Britain, and then once you're there, incredible. And also the pub culture, I'm I'm really missing that. So, but the beer is better in Germany. I the think. beer is far better in Germany. <laughs> beer is better in Germany. <laughs> but the, the again, things we agree on, Jan. I don't know. The British vibe is uh, in in the in the pub. Not not necessarily about alcohol, but just the 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 happiness and mm. and the cheerfulness and singing along to songs. I I miss that. Ah, well, I, we can try and create a little bit in this podcast. <laughs> yes, but, um, yeah, yeah. but you know, we've got some fun and games coming later, everyone. Ooh, well, okay. But I want to go back again to this point that you were saying about this this almost this transition you've made in your career which is really interesting mm -hmm. um where you have shifted from as you say being a kind of 
quite hardcore coral reef ecologist yeah. to then being really interested in well what does this mean for conservation what does mm. this mean for people what yes. does this mean for policy what does this mean for change what does this mean in our world as it is and so you occupy this kind of interesting in-between space um and i just wondered if you could talk a little bit more mm -hmm. about this shift to policy absolutely why it's so interesting to you mm -hmm. um and what your kind of hopes are maybe in the projects you've been working on or, or are working on in terms of what you think your work can do yeah absolutely i uh thank you for asking that um i think there's a there's a um quite a negative divide uh that is even especially in germany i feel it currently um a, a divide between nature and people um or nature and culture um so and, and I think that split isn't healthy when it comes to conservation. Um, there's this term floating around uh, fortress conservation where you where you actively exclude people from nature in order to get nature to its intrinsic uh, uh, values or, or get the intrinsic values of nature back. But I think that's a, that's not a future proof concept. Um, I think as, as the human population grows on the planet, there's very little um, space that is uh, pristine and that is untouched by humans so we need to really get to grips with how we how we um, conserve nature together with with people so and the concept um, of people and nature that really uh, came to the forefront during like I said during my PhD and I, I wanted I, I think with interdisciplinarity you you reach far far more and, and you can include far more voices in in your research so i think we we get further with interdisciplinarity social ecological mm. methods um and that means including people means including social science mm. because um yeah i i think uh excluding people is a thing of, should be a thing of the past mm. and we need to get people involved in in conservation like stewardship for instance mm. like the i'm currently working on a project that explores um relational values of people and nature so the bi-directionality um of people and nature and and people ex uh, uh, display an incredible amount of stewardship once they are let into the into into nature and then they they do care for it a lot but you need to let them uh, and and i think that's where i see my research positioned a little mm. bit in in this more inclusive more future-proof way of conservation mm. thing. And, and have there been any challenges in making this step like what what have you found yeah interesting or intriguing or challenging mm -hmm. about making this move yeah the the um i think that the most intriguing part about it is learning about social science methods at mm -hmm. first and and how very different uh, natural sciences and social sciences can be at times and and uh coming to <laughs> coming to grips with uh, qualitative data uh um because i'm a very quantitative uh, scientist um by training but now uh really experiencing like through a survey we've done recently where there were some open-ended questions and the responses you get are so invaluable like you you really can take a, a whole quote of a person who is working who has been working their whole life on the warden sea for instance and you get more out of that one sentence than you would get out of out of a set of numbers mm. um so really bringing that to the forefront that those social science methods and how how much worth they are that um at first was a challenge and now it's it's really rewarding i think and i think that's the thing isn't it it's the it's what it gives you it's not it doesn't have to be an either or it's the fact that it gives you exactly. depth yeah it gives you the 
it maybe allows you to answer the question of why. Mm -hmm. So we can see how something has happened perhaps with some quantitative data we can see how things take shape yeah. but why has that happened or what has led to that and yeah. speaking with people and allowing them to say things in their own words exactly. is, is as you say it's really it's really valuable but it's it's exactly what you're saying as well though is it's a different system of knowledge mm -hmm. of thinking about what knowledge counts yeah um and so i mean that's a challenge for policy because policy makers of course yeah. like things that are very certain you yeah. know they do yeah. like numbers they do like figures yeah. um i mean what's your view on that how do you think there's a possibility to incorporate more voices into the policy landscape i i, I do hope we can we can come up with some creative ways on how to include them but i also get the like i i really understand the the policy maker side of things on on wanting um more more graspable more uh, practical advice from us um and i do hope that's that's exactly the making something that is inherently really complex quite graspable and understandable for policymakers and that's exactly where i see my research position now is um very uh, applied policy science interface work mm. um so making it more applied but also not losing those the 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 complexity of those voices mm. um that would be ideal in an yeah. ideal world and that's what we're trying to work towards and that gets me to a kind of i guess quite a big question yeah obviously this topic is very close to my heart mm. but you know it, we we know that there's lots and lots of policy there's tons of policy there's mm -hmm. lots and lots out there um we're creating new regulations new guidance new laws around how the marine environment is managed mm -hmm. and how it is governed. And that presents challenges in terms of, you know, does it function, does it work? You know, we can provide all this information, but does it actually do anything? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's something that potentially, you know, keeps me awake yeah. at night. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> so, you know, what, what do you think are the main challenges facing marine policy? And do you have any suggestions? Like what, what how mm. can some of the, the things that we know and we understand across the social sciences and the natural sciences and the range of those disciplines we do here, how can that, how can that do best do its work in a policy sphere? What what do we need mm -hmm. to do? What do we need to change? Yeah, what are the answers, Jan? <laughs> I don't know the answers. How do we save the world? I've, I, uh, again, in that recent survey we've done, we've um, found that, especially when it comes to marine biodiversity change, um, the, the most impacted um, nature's contributions to people we call them um the the most um impacted ones are the ones who are the non-material values that people derive from nature so that would be cultural values experiences mm. like touristic experiences or identities um things like things of those of that nature will be the ones that take the biggest hit when biodiversity changes but currently our um, policies are all aligned towards the material things like the, the fish we catch in the ocean or um, even the regulating uh, nature's contributions to people. So what it means for the climate, um, if, if this many phytoplankton species change or, or move away from the water and see what does that mean for the climate regulation? Those things we kind of have on our radar, but the non-material things we don't have on our radar and we need to include them in policies more. Um, and that means that's uh, very welcome to hear. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. So we and and that means including more social science methods and more qualitative methods into the uh, into the policy sphere. I think um, at a at a recent um, talk that I did, you you mentioned the uh, disturbing figure of only seven percent uh, 
of social sciences are, are being funded or what was the exact number? Yeah, I think the um, it comes from a recent paper that yeah. I think has come out in Nature Sustainability. Yeah. And it's the of the marine sciences, mm -hmm. only seven, I can't remember the exact quote. Um, it's seven point something percent yeah. Yeah. Um, is marine social sciences. Yeah, exactly. Yet everything that you've been saying is 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 aligned to this idea that, okay, well, we've got all this scientific knowledge, but it can't do anything unless... We understand how policy works. It can't do anything unless it gets to policymakers. It can't do anything unless it's somehow enacted in some way, which mm -hmm. requires people, right? Yeah, and yeah. understanding people. Exactly. But seven, seven point something. I'm sorry, listeners. Yeah, no, I'm, seven I'm not points, prepared, sorry. Seven, <laughs> seven point something percent. And, um, yeah. and so, yeah, I mean, and that partly comes down to the question of funding. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, very so, much so. So, so that is a, another another big challenge that I see is is there needs to be more funding made available to interdisciplinary projects or social science projects or, or marine social sciences need to be more included into in the in the policy sphere. There's just no way around it. And another challenge that I see is um, at the moment for for marine conservation, we only seem to have one tool, which is marine protected areas, um, MPAs we call them, and and a big question that from me stems from that because there's many flaws with uh, MPAs because it's uh, you, the the sea is very interconnected. You can't separate it as well as you can a forest with a with a fence. The the big challenge here is is there even a, a tool that we can come up with that isn't an MPA? Is there anything other than MPAs? Because I I certainly right now I don't have the answers, but I I want this question to be addressed. Are there things other than anything that isn't as bordered as you would have it on the land maybe mm. something like that that, that floats around in my head mm. <laughs> yeah yeah and i think thinking about those kinds of practical things that mm -hmm. again going back to that exactly. point you were making about things being applied exactly it needs to be practical. it needs to be practical of course not not just a theoretical mm. uh thing from the top of my head but mm. uh perhaps we can come up with something Maybe that's a big question for the future. Is there something other than MPAs? And for our <laughs> institute, I think, yeah. as well. So I think you know, we've learned a little bit about you, Jan, which was the aim of this. <laughs> Diver, yeah. well, son, so, academic yeah. son and <laughs> actual son. I'm a son. <laughs> <laughs> Diver, policy passionate. Mm -hmm. Would you count yourself a social scientist, Jan? I'm... I'm, I'm if if you want to have me, I'll I'll, I'll gladly join. <laughs> He's on board, everyone. Yeah. He's on board. So talking about working with people, though, um, you've worked with people quite a lot now in your research, mm. working with policymakers, working with everyday people. You've mm. also been involved in teaching and mentoring. We'll get to that in just a moment. But what's been the most surprising thing you've learned about working with people? Because I know what some of the, for me, I know what some of the most, you know, <laughs> surprising things have been about working with people, yeah. perhaps unsurprising things about working with people. But what's it been for you? Mm -hmm. I think uh, so in the Morisco project, we've worked a lot with stakeholders. Um, so, so that is uh, policymakers from the area, actually. So from Lower Saxony that govern the Wadensee, the, the uh, Lower Saxon part of the Wadensee. Germany is very federal and very structured and divided. <laughs> so even even the Wadensee, the management of the Wadensee is divided between states, and the Lower Saxon part um, of the managers, we've we've worked with them, and and they've been incredibly engaged and, and incredibly that they've been such a, a useful resource for us, and they've helped so much with our research. But um, they didn't get funded, 
um, from our project. So they were involved in our project, but they didn't see anything from the funding. Um, and the problem is that whenever they wanted to join a, a workshop from us, they pretty much had to take time off their actual work to join our workshop. Mm. Um, so I think in the future, the biggest learning for me was in the future, um, scientific projects that involve stakeholders need to make funding available for the stakeholders. They need to be paid for, for the work they do. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, there's lots of debates about kind of, yeah, what can be offered to to yeah. to stakeholders and you know how much is taken from stakeholders in terms of just you know wanting expertise but at the same time what is given back to them as well so i think that's a really core and crucial crucial method and so we've been talking about working with people mm. um one thing that has been really wonderful <laughs> uh, and that we've also been involved with um together but you've also done um very much independently as well you've been very much involved in mentoring mm -hmm. um through um uh, the gss scheme um the global sustainability, sustainability scholars scheme yeah, yeah. thank you very much no that's a wonderful scheme yeah definitely for bringing international scholars mm -hmm. um to institutes to learn about what happens within interdisciplinary or disciplinary sciences depending on where those scholars land mm -hmm. um so you've been really involved in that yeah um tell us a little bit more about it sure. and some of the highlights of yeah. particularly working with what's been a group of really amazing young people yeah they were um yeah so the the gss or the, the global sustainability scholars is a theme or a scheme by the uh, belmont forum who we were funded by um and they pretty much make a, a stipend available to young scholars who are in between their bachelor's and their master's or their master's and their PhD. Um, and then they come to our institution and work with us. And some of the, the highlights definitely in that were uh, each, each. so we had three years were, was the project. So we had three cohorts of uh, students and the first, the, each each had their own highlights. So the first one was was Gabriel Gadsden, Gabe, um, who we work very closely uh, with. And, and he did a, an incredible academic um, review of, of stakeholders. And um, he, but he joined us during the pandemic. So, so that was the, the absolute massive challenge of, of first getting him here and then having him have a nice time or, or making him have a nice time um, while he's in pandemic Germany. And uh, he, he, how do you say in German is wie sagt man? And he always came to me and said, wie sagt man uh, cereal? Or wie sagt man uh, microphone things like that it's uh, and that, that i always remember this from from gabe he, he was incredible um and then yeah each like i said each cohort had their own moments then we had uh out of pandemic times and then we had valeria um and marilyn join so uh, uh valeria menendez and uh marilyn smith and they both they worked on the survey that i mentioned before and and really they they challenged me so much on on getting there we are again talking about the complexity thing. So I, I always wanted the survey to be more complex in order to get more scientific knowledge out of it. But they wanted it less complex so that more stakeholders would would feel en, uh, uh, enabled to fill it out. Um, and I think we, we, we made a good bridge on, on, on coming together. Um, I think we could have simplified it more in the end. So, so, so they were correct in the end, the students. Um, and Valeria and Marilyn, they uh, also came to a trip in, in, on Speaker Oak with, with Helmut and me. Uh, so our institute head, who is also the head of the Marisco project, um, we all went to, to Speaker Oak and had a, had a great time. 
uh, for a day. And then in the last year, we had Alifair joining, who um, did the fact sheet, who is, which is currently the only output on the transfer office website. Um, she did that, and uh, she pretty much summarized everything that the um, Marisco project had done up to that point as a as a fact sheet. So fact sheets on or, or facts on biodiversity change, mm. basically. And uh, she she is actually so, so with all of them we're. Uh, the, I'm, I'm currently writing up the study for uh, the survey with uh, Marilyn and, and Valeria and um, Alifair I, I will now join in Barcelona on the UN Ocean Decade Conference she's uh, presenting our work there so I'm, I'm still in contact with all of them and that's pretty much my highlight it's, it's an incredible group I haven't had one bad experience mm. um, they're all incredible scholars and and i wish them all the best they're, they're cool people really cool people and you've highlighted something as well that's really crucial about any form of kind of supervision is that you is that it's it's almost like a lifetime commitment yeah you know yeah, i think absolutely. students i supervised many many years ago they still email me saying i'm applying for a new job mm. would you write a reference and you're yeah, like exactly. oh hi how are you doing what's going so it's those connections that you build mm. throughout your and it's so special with the gss scheme because it's international because mm. it brings scholars um to give the, to, to give those scholars themselves these opportunities to to work in the environment that we have here mm -hmm. and and so um yeah it's a fantastic it's a really really fantastic scheme exactly um the so yeah so i mean have you found that you've got you know from that experience of what's well, technically supervision i guess mm -hmm. right because yeah. you're literally you're working on 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 projects with these students yeah. you're guiding them through um doing academic projects be they writing literature reviews producing fact sheets um surveys putting surveys together yeah. um has that has that given you a bit of a passion for teaching absolutely it, it totally has i like i've um i can it, it, it um so sorry during the during my phd i received incredible uh, supervision by by nick graham and uh magnus, academic dad yeah my academic dad and magnus newstrom um from stockholm resilience center and they were incredible mentors and i, I that that kind of raised the the bar for me to kind of give that back to the academic youth so to say i don't know we've and made ourselves sound very old jan yeah yeah absolutely and that's the thing that's wonderful about any form of teaching or supervision is that it's kind of not hierarchical it's always a dialogue yeah you know yeah, i think every be. year i teach a module and i'm like wow i, I hadn't thought about it like that yeah, exactly. and it's and yeah. that's the thing is is it's not the i think the days of of teaching in a way that's very top down mm -hmm. you know i will bestow my knowledge on you yeah. are kind of gone because yeah. you know there's always and there's always these beautiful moments with supervision where yeah. um where of course your 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 students become the experts as mm -hmm. well you know and they're kind of saying well you know actually maybe we could think about it like this or exactly like that. yeah and so like when i read what the, the paper that gabe wrote for instance uh he 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 words things so nicely mm. and 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 i always thought when when i read uh parts of of his paper it's like oh wow you can write it like you, you can write like that that's incredible mm. and took some of his his writing as a as a for or, or as a blueprint for me to mm. write yeah it's incredible and it's so important because you know rightly that these are generations of scholars who yeah. will you know yeah who are going to enrich and inform and inform all the disciplines that we work in yeah yeah oh it's exciting times <laughs> so i think we've learned quite a lot about you as a scientist jan it's been really interesting actually to think about your trajectory from 
you know, diving with your dad, which I think was such a nice start point to actually <laughs> thinking about how, you know, something that's such a, something that you do with another person, you mm -hmm. know, and then that you've come back to this sort of peopled research and, and, and working with people. Um, but I know mm. that you're not just an awesome scientist. <laughs> I know this. I also know you're a very high level lacrosse player. Is this correct? I, yeah, that's correct. Well, <laughs> very high level. That uh, depends on who, who you ask. Um, if you're asking me, I'm saying high level. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my question is, I mean, obviously, you know, how do you balance this career mm. with, you know, staying kind of, you know, that healthy work-life balance, Jan? Yeah, exactly. It's a good good point that you raised. No, because you're getting busier and busier, you know. Yeah, Every yeah. time I'm like, oh, you know, Jan's working on other papers, on another project, you know. How do you how do you keep that balance? Yeah, it's actually, um, so, so obviously the, the job is still the priority, but um, up to this point, lacrosse or, or sports in general have always been a great uh, outlet for, for stress um, and, and are always a nice ending or start, depending on when you do it, uh, to the day. And uh, like we we are not trying to build a little a little lacrosse club here in in Oldenburg and and we have really cool people who joined, um, and it's always nice like on a on a Tuesday night uh, you you for the whole working day you kind of look forward to that end of the day mm. um, that you get to uh, uh, teach people lacrosse the the sport that you fell in love with, <laughs> it's nice um, it's it's yeah it's a really cool offset to all the stress you pile up during mm. the day, mm. yeah. Why lacrosse? And also, yeah. our listeners, could you describe lacrosse for us, yeah. Jan? Oh, God. It's a... Uh, um, Just in case people don't know. Yeah, it's like a mix of um, handball, if you know that, um, basketball and um, ice hockey. So you can go... You, you're wearing protective gear like a helmet and gloves and uh, you have a stick in your hand that looks a little bit like you're going to catch butterflies. Um and then you catch a ball with that and you pass it between you so it flies through the air. It doesn't go like a puck on ice and you play on grass um, on, a, on a football field. You have goals that are 180 by 180 uh, meters. Um, and uh, yeah, then you try to get that ball into the, into the goal where there's also a goalie in the goal who can save it. Um, yeah, and the, the movement looks a lot like basketball. So you're going up and down the field. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, how do I, <laughs> how do I balance it? I'm, uh, next month, actually, I'm going to, um, go, going to Portugal for the Eurolax, uh, tournament with the, with the Germans. So, um, hopefully I can, I can stay active up to lacrosse. Actually, fun fact, just got Olympic. So we're in a, yeah, we're in a, really? yeah, an Olympic sport. This is so exciting. Yeah. Do we have an Olympian within our midst? No, not yet. No. Um, so, so the first time it will Watch be... Watch this space. Yeah. <laughs> the next time it will be Olympic will be uh, in 2028. Okay. So if I can stay active until mm. then, let's see. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's so exciting. What a development for, 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 for both Jan and for the sport of lacrosse. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, well. Why lacrosse? It's, uh, it's a good mix of, of many... Um, attributes you have to be really agile you have to be quite strong at times because it's physical you can check each other um yeah it's and and but you also have to be quite aware and and uh, make clever moves at times mm. so it combines a lot of things it's mm. nice yeah and you can also re-listen to that as <laughs> career advice as well yeah <laughs> be strong stay agile yes <laughs> stay on your feet <laughs> 
Oh, Jan, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you um, and learning so much about about your work and your contributions. And um, I will use this opportunity to thank you for instigating the amazing podcast um, that we have here at HIFMB. Thank you. I'm going to finish with... I've got a little surprise segment for you. Yeah, let's go. Jan. So what I'm going to do, okay, I don't know if you've ever played this game. Um, I don't know if our listeners have ever played this game. I'm going to ask you 15 questions. Okay, 15. Okay? There's 15. Yeah, right. there's 15. And you have to answer immediately. Okay. okay? So okay. I'm going to give you two options. You just answer one. Have you ever played this? It's super fun. No. So I, if I, you, I get two options. You get two options. Right, you okay. just have to immediately. It's just, yeah. it's just literally, it's quick, 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 yeah. straight in yeah. there. Okay. okay? Um, and this is the way we're going to get to know Jan the best at the <laughs> end of today's interview. You. Okay. One. Sweet or savory? Sweet. Still or sparkling? Sparkling. Hot or cold? Oh, cold. Flip-flops or sliders? Flip-flops. Beach or mountains? We oui, uh beach. Football or rugby? Rugby. Ooh, which team? Rugby team? South Africa. Oh. <laughs> Museum or art gallery? Ooh, uh art gallery. Rock or easy listening? Rock. Ed Sheeran or Taylor Swift? Oh, Tay-Tay. <laughs> <laughs> He's a Swifty. Yeah. Okay, and now to work. Plants or animals? Uh, animals. Plankton or platypus? Platypus. I've never seen one, actually. Oh, I, I, I bet they're incredible. <laughs> <laughs> sea or shore? Oh, uh, shore. Oh, boat or submarine? Boat. Salmon or trout? Uh, trout. <laughs> Kim or helmet? Oh, that's that. I, I can't answer that one. Pass. Oh, pass. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't expecting that one as the last one. No. Um, Jan, you've been a very good sport. Thank We've you. talked about everything from your career to sport. Um, and I'll just say it again. It's been a total pleasure. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Likewise. <laughs> Have a good one. <laughs> Want to dive deeper? Surf over to hifmb.de or follow us on Twitter at hifmb underscore ol.